from Green Biz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at Green Biz headquarters at 350 Frank Ogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, the fast food industry's new war on waste, the end of natural gas, and live from Davos, well, from earlier this week, it's the sustainability scene in the Swiss Alps. It's a slippery slope this week on 350. It's January 26, 2018. Welcome to this week's episode of Green Biz 350. Joining me, as always, is Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather. Greetings, Joel. How is life on the uh, right coast? It is excellent. A beautiful sunny day today, and um, things are going well. Glad to hear that. Um, it's uh, another momentous week in the world of sustainability. We'll talk a little bit about what's going on in Davos later on in the in the show. But um, had this uh, this Trump administration decision on solar tariffs, and it's caused a lot of consternation about is this the demise of the U.S. solar industry or just a little cloudy day? So, <laughs> yeah, um, it seems like we cannot go a week without some misguided decision on the, the behalf of the Trump administration. But yes, the, the long-awaited decision on solar tariffs came down, and yes, there will be solar tariffs <laughs> on imports. Now, the good news, if you will, if you will, is that they weren't as bad as they were anticipated, and there's some some good data floating around on the fact that it won't necessarily raise costs as much as is feared. I think that um, the industry has been preparing for this. I'm actually doing some research on some work out of RMI um, on how to address the, the installation costs and, and to come, come up with better integrated solutions. So even though this, the panels themselves may, co- may be costing more in the future, there's work going on on other parts of the equation to help keep the costs lower. So I'm doing some research on uh, what the corporate buyer world thinks. Um, stay tuned on that. But uh, yeah, um, honestly, I think the biggest um, impact might be in the jobs space, ironically. Uh, <laughs> uh, we, we, the Trump administration seems to think that coal mining jobs are better than every other job, um, unfortunately. And yeah, lots of consternation. That's a that's a good word for it. Well, that's the, that's the interesting part, because it's really only... Uh, I think low thousands of jobs in solar manufacturing in the United States. There aren't that many companies, and maybe that'll that will that will grow a little bit. But uh, as a result of this tariff, but there are, according to the Solar Energy Industries Association, twenty three thousand to three thousand uh, jobs in in solar uh, in the U.S. altogether that this this would lose. I mean, there's hundreds of thousands of solar jobs, but twenty three thousand of them. Uh, could go away as a result of this, and these are installers and and sellers and engineers and others that that are beyond the manufacturing of the actual solar cells. But how do we get these on the roofs? And so that's the curious part uh, in, in a curious time uh, why that decision was was made because it could have some significant job uh, reduction implications. 
Yeah. And, you know, and I will just, um, again, I'm in the good news. I'm in the good news mindset right now, but it is also um, the imports, the, the tariffs do kick in after 2.5 gigawatts of imports. So again, could have been way worse, I got to be honest. Um, so who knows? And I, and I, I love the ingenuity that's already being expressed on the part of the industry on, okay, you threw another obstacle in our way, we're going to leap over it really, really well. So I'm, I'm keeping my fingers crossed and toes and so forth, but um, I already, I'm already hearing good things uh, on, on, on that front. Well, great. Uh, I love your optimism. And on that optimistic note, let's move over to the Week in Review. So, Joel, I think the first story that I'd love to talk about is your story. You did some writing this week. Um, a great piece that uh, kind of aggregates and combines several of the really forward-thinking plastics and, and waste reduction um, efforts going on. Uh, inside Coke and McDonald's new war on waste. So we had two big announcements last week. Can you um, cue, cue us up? Tell, tell us a little bit about what McDonald's and Coca-Cola are doing. Yeah, uh, well, uh, some of this has to do with Davos, and uh, as we'll hear uh, later on, uh, uh, we talked to the Ellen MacArthur Foundation from Davos, plastics is one of the big words of this uh, of this year in terms of plastic waste and plastic pollution and uh, the, the economic and social toll. And in the run-up to Davos, uh, two big companies, as you said, McDonald's and Coca-Cola, made announcements. McDonald's said that they would make 100% all of its consumer packaging from renewable, recyclable, and certified materials. That's certified by the Ford Stewardship Council for the uh, tree-based uh, products by 2025, so just seven years from now. Uh, it also pledged to offer consumer package recycling in all of its restaurants worldwide by 2025. That's um, pretty remarkable because uh, only uh, recycling is only available in about 10% of their restaurants globally. And of course, a lot of that has to do with the local recycling infrastructure and 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 all of that. So they're going to have they have some work to do on that front. And then uh, a few days later, uh, Coca-Cola announced an initiative called World Without Waste. I love that when they name the goal, which is uh, exactly what that should be, and this is a global goal to help and collect and recycle the equivalent of 100% of its packaging by 2030, so 12 years from now, um, as well as to make bottles with an average of 50% recycled content. So the equivalent is the key word there that they could collect more in one country and nothing in another um, as long as it equals the same number of beverage containers that they put into the market worldwide. So those are pretty big deals. And um, and Mukhtar Kent, the CEO of Coca-Cola, spoke this week in Davos uh, talking about this. Uh, so having a CEO use his time on the world stage at the World Economic Forum to talk about plastics and recycling is is a pretty big deal. So yeah, this was this is interesting, and um, I spent some time talking to both companies, and uh, thought I'd play a clip of my conversation with Francesca DiBiase, who is both the uh, head of global supply chain and head of sustainability for McDonald's, and that's an interesting combination right then there as well, that, that the head of sustainability also oversees uh, the supply chain. McDonald's, like most companies, has 
the overwhelming uh, percentage of its Im- environmental impacts in its supply chain. So that kind of makes sense. I asked her to just give a little backstory about how this came to be. Here's what she had to say. We've been working on things like packaging and recycling for over 25 years. I mean, you're in the industry. You recognize that we've been, we started our work 25 years ago with Environmental Defense Fund when we first started talking about removing the foam um, packaging for our burgers at that time. And so now, you know, the last two years, I would say we've been working on the turnaround strategy for the company. And as part of that turnaround, a big part of the culture change is focusing on the customers and being customer-obsessed. And when we ask our customers, you know, what's the biggest environmental challenge that you'd like us to address, they said packaging waste, which seems maybe surprising, but probably isn't because it's the most visible thing for us as a company. At the same time, we as a company feel like we have the opportunity and, quite frankly, the responsibility to take action on some of the most pressing environmental challenges in the world and use our scale for good. So, when we have an announcement that customers are telling us that it's critical for them and it's important for our brand as well, it just seems like uh, it's an opportunity for us to address an issue that we share. It's also, I would imagine, that a big brand that you are um, have been under a lot of pressure from the activist front and maybe even around from the local government front around the world to look at the waste issue. Has that been a factor? To be quite frank about it, we haven't gotten that. And you know, a big company like McDonald's, for us to be able to make a statement like this and get a strategy behind it and work with organizations like the Environmental Defense Fund and WWF and FSC, we've been working on this for over a year. So I think maybe are in a little bit different perspective. We we haven't had that pressure. Uh, When we look at The environmental impact of our packaging, it's about 6% of our environmental footprint. So certainly something like beef would be much larger, although obviously this is this is 6% is a large amount, but we haven't felt that same level of pressure. So Joel, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always like you heard me earlier. I'm, I'm the optimist, right? I, I, I believe when, um, when big companies like this do something that it's important. Um, but I have, I did see a little bit of flack and, 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 you know, like, Oh, this isn't enough. You know, I, I saw some of the, the commentary on the piece and um, you know, I'm just, is this, you know, context wise, are these goals enough? Uh, enough uh, for what? I mean, it's not, no one company can solve this problem on their own, but w- one of the interesting things that's going to happen of all, from all this, as I said, the recycling infrastructure doesn't exist in a lot of the countries where Coke and McDonald's do business. And for them to accomplish the goals that they have, recycling all their packaging or, or the equivalent, is going to require that they partner not just with the uh, municipalities and, and other public agencies, but also with other companies. I mean, you know, one should be looking at Pepsi and Burger King and everybody else who's in their space, they need to get on this too. And so to the extent that these initiatives cause uh, recycling infrastructure to be created and and to do that requires getting a critical mass of companies in a given jurisdiction to start doing this stuff as well, this could be a catalytic kind of initiative. And so, yeah, I mean – you know, no one company can solve these huge problems, marine plastics being being the one in this case, or, or certainly one of them, 
all by themselves, but I kind of like the bold, uh, audacious vision of these commitments. I think that's important. So Heather, I know you'd like this piece that uh, James Murray from Business Green wrote uh, called Is the DNA of GDP Evolving? And this also stems from the Davos. Yeah, I, I like this piece because it really does point to one of the biggest issues that the sustainability movement faces, which is that, you know, as you look at a business, um, the traditional measure of impact, of, of growth, and so forth is the gross domestic product. You know, everyone, every country reports on it, every city, every community. And um, there was a great development out of, out of Davos this week. The uh, latest edition of the World Economic Forum's Inclusive Development Index. Um, it is it showcases a little bit a twist from traditional measures um, in that they're looking at growth, if you will, um, along some different metrics now. After decades of prioritizing economic growth over social equity, we've seen that this leads to, you know, income inequality and and so forth. The um, the new index is is looking at this what they perceive as a flaw, and they're proposing an alternative to the gross domestic product measure, the GDP measure, um, one that, that includes pillars like, like inclusion and intergenerational equity. So like how will this affect the world in the future? Um, and will it, will it you know, disproportionately you know, harm a future generation? Um, so, so they're looking at, um, yes, the conventional measures, if you will, the labor productivity, employment, a healthy life expectancy, but they're also layering in um, things like poverty and wealth and income inequality and uh, environmental metrics um, like public debt, the carbon intensity of that GP- GDP, and so forth. So, you know, when you when you see uh, when you see a, a, an organization like this starting to talk about um, growth in those kind of measures, it, it does to me signal a, a turning point. Uh, and and James <laughs> James points the irony of 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 this um, in that about you know in the year two thousand the uh, the Davos crowd used to call call this sort of thinking anti capitalist <laughs> but um, in any way it, it, it demonstrates and showcases that um, they're trying to uh, look at these these measures on it on a different uh, scale if you will. Yeah. I mean, I have to say, and I don't want to rain on your optimism parade here, but this has been going on for a long time. I mean, the conversations about alternatives to GDP have been around for a long time. There's the genuine progress indicator. uh, And I don't don't know how far back that goes, but it's been going. I remember hearing well over a decade ago, in fact, the state of Vermont in 2012 passed a law mandating the calculation of what they call GPI, and it's been estimated in other states, uh, Colorado, Massachusetts, Oregon, some others. And then, of course, there's the uh, Gross National Happiness Index that that the country, nation of Bhutan, put in their constitution in 2008. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I get it. I, I think it's critically important that we've, you know, we've been uh, really measuring the wrong things for a long, long time. Paul Hawken has a great line that says, uh, "We're stealing the future, selling it in the present, and calling it GDP," because we're measuring basically, you know, the extraction of things from uh, from the biosphere. We're, me- you know, we're measuring all the things that happen as a result, as a result, but not really measuring 
the externalities or, or not measuring the things like childcare or volunteerism or things that arguably make us a better world. So I love this. I hope it works. <laughs> I have to say that, you know, the, the cynical old man in me says, I've seen this movie before and it, it's always sort of has the same ending. So sorry about that. Yeah, I think I'm going to just push back again and say, this is in Davos and that's where the CEOs of the world are. You know, when you have, with with all respect to Vermont, um, I'm just, I'm not sure that many CEOs spend a lot of time there. And I, when you have actors on the world stage talking about this in a place where, you know, CEOs are with their peers and they're on the ski scopes or whatever, and they're talking, I, I just feel like the the level of visibility on this hit a different point. Yeah, no, I mean... I said it before a few minutes ago. I'll say it again. I love your optimism. I hope it happens. <laughs> but uh, let's let's move over to another, uh, I think, pretty optimistic story, uh, certainly provocative one by our, our friend Danny Kennedy, who's the managing director of the California Clean Energy Fund, CalCEF. Uh, the end of natural gas is near. Now, this is uh, certainly kind of... Uh, of contrapuntal uh, to the conventional wisdom, which is that natural gas is now it's cheap and ubiquitous thanks to fracking. It's going to be around for a long time, and it's this bridge fuel from uh, the fossil fuels from coal in particular to uh, renewables. He's saying that that's actually not turning out to be the case. In fact, it's kind of uh, a, a bridge fuel to nowhere. Yeah, and he he uses as his main argument the um, the big layoffs last late last year uh, at Siemens and GE. Both of them took big whacks at their gas turbine making operations, right? So they they have these big businesses and they're and they're laying people off. Sort of an indicator that they're not expecting um, there to be new natural gas um, power plants and 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 turbine operations and so forth. So. What, what I loved about this piece is the traffic of commentary about it. I mean, there's a ton of um, opinions uh, and, and, you know, on both sides, actually, like, you know, some, some individuals just saying right, right on others suggesting that, that um, being that Danny's in California, that he's might be smoking a, a little too much of something. Um, and, but I think one of the things that I wanted, uh, and I didn't realize, um, but that, uh, Danny was also uh, the co-author of uh, a piece a couple years ago called The End of Coal is Near. And uh, he got just as much uh, or probably even more flack and, and ridicule uh, for that for that argue, article. But um, I, lo- I just I think I think by lobbying this out there, he's he's getting a lot of people thinking about something that maybe they need to be thinking about more. So loved it. And. And isn't that all you can ask for a nice piece of uh, journalism or commentary? Absolutely. Get people talking and thinking. Hi, it's Joel again. If you're enjoying this podcast, I hope you'll check out Center Stage, our new podcast featuring live interviews from Green Biz events. You'll find conversations with notables like Paul Hawken, Annie Leonard, Janet Napolitano, and executives from a wide range of companies. Check it out. Go to greenbiz.com slash center stage or wherever you get your podcasts.
So as we said before, this is World Economic Forum Week in Davos. And amidst all the conversation about trade and taxes and Trump, um, there's some conversations about sustainability. And we talked to a couple of people uh, about this who are in Davos this week. And I'm going to play a couple of uh, interviews that uh, I had the chance to do. The first is with Rob Upsimer, who's the Systemic Initiatives Lead at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. Ellen MacArthur Foundation, as you probably know, has been the big proponent of the circular economy, a great partner of GreenBiz, and um, Ellen and, and others have been at Davos for a number of years. And uh, they did a couple of things this year, and I wanted to talk with Rob about that. So here's what we had to say. And I want to warn you that uh, via Skype across the Atlantic, there's a little bit of breakup. It's not as high quality as you'd hope, but it's quite audible. So Rob, uh, first of all, tell me, what's the Ellen MacArthur Foundation doing this year in Davos? So this year, the Ellen MacArthur Foundation is making two major announcements on its new plastics economy program, which is aiming to accelerate the transition to a circular economy for plastics, keeping plastics as a valuable material in the economy out of our oceans. First, we're announcing here, or we announced rather yesterday, the winners of our $2 million New Plastics Economy Innovation Prize, which we launched earlier this year together with um, the Prince of Wales, and um, looked at the 30% of plastic packaging that today cannot be reused or recycled and find new ways to design packaging and better materials so that that packaging can be recycled or composted. So that's one bit of, of, of our announcement here. Uh, we can talk about it more in a minute. And then the other bit of our announcement is that um, uh, yesterday we also announced that um, there's now 11 companies, uh, global consumer good brands like Unilever, um, Coca-Cola, PepsiCo, Walmart, uh, and a number of others, have now all committed to only use 100% reusable, recyclable, or compostable uh, plastic packaging by 2025. Uh, and many of them have also included a um, significant recycled content uh, target, which is also really important, aside from designing your packaging to be reusable or recyclable, also using actual recycled content to create demand for, in the end, collection and recycling services, um, including Avion's commitment to use 100% recycled content in all their bottles by 2025. So, Rob, why do you think plastics has risen to the level where it's now one of the focuses at Davos? You know, if you look at the issues around plastics and, and plastics in the ocean, I think... You know, it's it's been for a long time intuitively clear to many people that, that plastics is, while they deliver many benefits and are convenient and, and deliver great functionality, they're also a an archetypical, archetypical example of our current linear take-make-dispose model. It's extremely wasteful. It's, 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 it ends up as pollution in the environment. But what we didn't have until a few years ago, really until, you know, two, three years ago, is an understanding of the scale and the extent of the issue. And we came here two years ago at the World Economic Forum in Davos and ran the numbers on, on, on the global plastics economy. And what we found is that um, 
on the one hand, if you look at plastic packaging, of all the 78 million tons of plastic packaging being produced each year, just 14%, 1-4% of that gets collected for recycling, and even less of that, just 2%, gets recycled at the same quality into um, new packaging. So that's 2% close-loop recycling, and that's 40 years after the introduction of, of the famous recycling symbol. And on the other hand, we found that one-third of all the plastic packaging leaks in the natural environment. So out of all three pieces of plastic packaging put on the market any second, one of them ends up in the natural environment. And in fact, so much plastic ends up in our oceans that by 2050, we could have more plastic than fish in the ocean. And, and, and these statistics... Um, when we brought them out, and, and there's been other similar ones that, that others have brought out in the past two to three years, were really quite, I think, were really quite of a shock to many people. It also became that report that we launched um, here in Davos became the, the, the most mediatized, the most quoted report that, that was ever launched at Davos. Um, and, and I think that, that understanding of the scale of the issue, um, again, through our research and, and through the research of many others, is something that, that has really um, catalyzed action and, and, and raise the awareness of the public, of the media, and ultimately of, of the industry and government around the world. So let's talk a little bit about some of the innovation award or prize winners. You gave out a million dollars, I guess, uh, distributed among these 11 winners. Was that the deal? Yeah, so there were $2 million uh, distributed among the 11 winners, and the uh, prize was actually split in degrees. There was a design challenge with $1 million of prizes and a materials challenge with $1 million of prizes. And the design challenge looked at how can we redesign the format of packaging or even the delivery model, the entire delivery model, so that we don't generate um, plastics waste. And just to give one example of what, what inspired that, if you look at the um, if you look at a, a, a beverage can, actually, a, a beer can, uh, it took 20, 30 years ago that um, tap you, you push to open the can. That used to come out, and that was very often littered, almost never recycled. And then the, the simple design change of changing the design of the can to the one we know today, where the tap stays on the can if you open it, that saved over a million tons of aluminum ever since yeah. um, and, and massively reduced that, that littering issue. That, so that was just one example of the power of design, and we, we, we sent that message into the world of what could be similar examples in the space of plastics. And, and we found examples like, for example, we had two winners on coffee cups, one um, that redesigned the um, single-use plastic cup, as we know it, into um, and with an origami-like folding technique that enabled um, to have plastic to, to have cups that are fully paper cups and that don't have the um, unrecyclable plastic lid by this um, folding technique. And we had one that, that um, reinvented the entire model and looked at how can we work out a system with reusable coffee cups that is still very convenient, that is still very easy to use, and that provides an incentive to people to actually do it. So, so these were the top innovations in the design challenge. And then in the materials challenge, that was a little bit more technical, and there we looked at, uh, in particular, multi-layer packaging that is unrecyclable. So that's, for example, a, a think about a crisp bag, 
Um, it has a layer of plastic, so it has a layer of, of, of metal. These are combined, and because they're combined, they can be recycled. And there's tons of examples like that, with also with different types of plastics being combined. Um, and um, hence, because they're combined, they cannot be recycled. How do these innovations get into the market? I mean, you've got seaweed-based packaging, um, great idea, but or the origami coffee cup. Uh, how do those get to our, our local coffee shop or wherever? Yeah, that's 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 a fantastic question, and that's why you know we when we thought about setting up the challenge, we didn't want to just hand out a dollar cash prize because at the end of the day, even with a with a few hundred thousand dollars of support for each of these innovators. That doesn't necessarily get you to scale. So what we've done now, all these innovators have now entered a 12-month accelerator program, and they're actually now starting starting today um, here in Switzerland, um, starting a 12-month accelerator program to get their products from ideas to actual marketable products. And we'll get them in touch with experts. We'll get them in touch with all the um, industry participants of the new plastics economy initiative that we're running the 40 to 50 um, major industry players will give them advice and, and help them uh, that way to scale their um, uh, again to scale their products from ID to a, a, a marketable yeah. product so finally uh, Rob you or at least Ellen MacArthur Foundation has been going to Davos for a number of years um, I'm not sure if you're the one who's been there or not but my question is how has the reception to um, not just the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, but to circular economy changed over that period of time. Are people listening more? Oh, absolutely. It's, it's changed massively. You know, we started out 60 years ago uh, where we launched the, the first major Ellen MacArthur Foundation report where we um, quantified the economic opportunity of, of the circular economy together with uh, McKinsey. And at that time, it, it wasn't, you know, a circular economy wasn't wasn't really a topic in, in you know, it wasn't really a topic anywhere in Deft and Davos. And, and it, we started out very small. And, and this year, there's a number of, of, of different sessions around circular economy. The topic is very much on the agenda. We also... Um, uh, see that um, it, it, it isn't it isn't a side topic for many of the companies. We see the CEOs engaging uh, directly in this level. We had a um, we had a uh, uh, an event yesterday to announce the prize winners. We had the CEO of Coca Cola speak at that event, for example. So we really see it it's get a massive momentum and it's become a CEO topic, which it absolutely needs to be. Well, that's great to hear. Um, and uh, can't wait to see what happens next year. Rob Opsomer, Systemic Initiatives Lead at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. Thanks for taking a few minutes out of Davos to talk with us and uh, stay warm. Thank you. The other person I talked to in Davos this week is an old friend of ours, Kevin Moss, who's the Global Director of the Business Center at the World Resources Institute. Here's that conversation. So thanks for taking some time out of your uh, busy Davos schedule to talk. Uh, one of the things that's on my mind is uh, the Global Risks Report the World Economic Forum puts out just before Davos every year. And, of course, this year, five of the top eight things were environmental risks. Uh, and, and I'm just wondering, how does that play out in the conversations that you actually hear and have on the streets in the meetings at Davos? 
Um, well, I think it's it, it, the way I see it is it, it it sets a really great background. I have to say, I don't think I've heard it referred to specifically very much. Uh, um, those of us in the NGO sustainability community like to refer to it a lot because it sets that really good backdrop. Um, um, so we we put it out there a lot, um, but but it's it it doesn't start the meetings if it wasn't for us saying it. I, mean, I, I think. So people aren't talking about uh, extreme weather or uh, human-caused environmental disasters or biodiversity loss or ecosystem collapse or any of the other things that the report called out. Um, no, oh, no. So maybe let me let me let me clarify that people are not starting their conversations or even finishing them talking about that report. Those topics are coming up in many of the meetings I attend. Um, um, and, and as you actually outlined, this isn't just about climate either. Um, a lot of topics are coming up, the topics around oceans, topics around food loss and waste. Um, but um, specific to the report is not how they tend to be framed, though. So what does that sound like? How do they frame it? The, they, they tend to be um, topic-specific events. I mean, you know, o- overall here... Um, I'm feeling that there's a really good, at the, certainly at the events I'm attending, a really good broad recognition of the environmental challenges um, and an understanding of the challenges of, of resource sustainabilities across businesses. Um, many, many positive signs. Um, yesterday, I was at a great event on the circular economy. Um, and what I found, rem- you know, there, were, there were the CEOs of, of Coca-Cola, Ikea, Arup, Philips, um, GM China, this is not just Western countries, um, GM China runs 15% of Chinese waste. And they were at a meeting that lasted an hour and a half. And it takes half an hour to get to and from these things. So CEOs of large corporations were taking a non-trivial amount of time. They were participating. They were informed, committed, um, and talking about how this stuff affects their core business. Um, so that, that's how it tends to be coming out. It doesn't start with the risks. If anything, the conversations start with the opportunities, because um, I think that's a much more comfortable business conversation. So there's uh, these are not the same old, same old uh, usual suspects. It sounds like there's at least a few, maybe, but some new companies as well. And, and it sounds like uh, they're, they're talking about the opportunities, but don't the opportunities mm-hmm. stem from from the sense of risk, whether it's financial, reputational, uh, right to operate, uh, business continuity, or, or some other risk? Um, the risk the risk component is certainly in there. If you rely on a raw material for a product you sell, the risk of overusing that raw material so it's not there for your product next year is certainly significant. But for many companies, there's also the opportunity of meeting a consumer need to want to know that they're working on that topic. Um, or actually developing a product. You know, there's a host, there's a, there's a, there are all the, the big brand companies we're very familiar with, but there's in the sustainability field. There's also a, a, a whole category of companies in what I'll call the enabler space, whether it's in finance, whether it's in chemicals, whose products enable another industry, so they're mostly business to business, to actually improve its performance within the sustainability field. And for those companies, there's a lot of opportunity in there as well, I, I, would, I would argue. And I think they see it. Those companies see that opportunity. So what's sticking out for you this year in terms of something that's maybe a newer, fresher, or more intense conversation than you're used to hearing? Let me, let me answer that in two ways. 
Um, I'm going to stick to saying that's not new science-based targets, but the growth of it is new. 338 companies committed. 800 companies via the CDP report have told their investors that they're going to commit to science-based targets. And um, Anand Mahindra announced today that he's committing the entirety of Mahindra. That's great because this is a big Indian conglomerate. Again, not just British, Northern European, American companies. Um, the entirety of Mahindra and its business units for science-based targets and called on global business to sign up. Um, that, that's, those are the sorts of signs we really, I, I'm really encouraged by. I think the change, some of the change in conversation is there's a lot of conversation now about systemic change, not isolated issues in, in, issues in isolation, climate or water or forests but looking at a, a willingness to talk about the systemic change that might be needed across perhaps the food and land sector, for example, or a, a, a system shift we might need across the energy sector. Um, those people are much more comfortable, comfortable with those conversations. And also I'm hearing people willing to talk about planetary boundaries and, and introduce that into their conversations as well. So that's a planetary boundaries is a really interesting conversation for a business audience to be having. That's not one that you typically hear. Um, do they talk about it as an intellectual thing or is it does this talk about it in a way where this actually is going to affect business strategy? So let, let me let me preface my answer by saying I go to the things where these topics are talked about, um, which also means there's a set, you know, a, a set of places where there are discussions where they may not be. But those that the businesses that come to these meetings are now willing to talk about those topics and talk about them as they affect um, or could affect their strategy in the future. Um, so, and, and I think that's, that those, that's encouraging. They're also willing to, you know, I participated in a meeting earlier today around how can we take the general concept of a planetary boundary and think about what does that mean for an individual company or what does that mean for a city? That's a, there's, there's a lot of logical steps to get from one to another, but just the ability to be able to have that conversation is really encouraging. Yeah. Well, you, you get the sense from uh, you know, reading about Davos that there's a lot of sort of back room or just private conversations, which is where you know, cer certainly some of the work is done. Does that happen on the sustainability front? Are those conversations taking place about climate strategies or policies? Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know that I like them. <laughs> I don't know that I use the terminology back room. That sort of suggests an, in, an intentionality to go have the conversation somewhere else. Um, but I do think this, is, this isn't the first time I've been to Davos. There were a lot of conversations that just happen before a meeting starts or after a meeting starts or walking along an icy street in Davos where two parts of a value chain might come together that otherwise wouldn't have. Um, I, I don't think, I don't know that deals are done here, but I do think that consensus building is done here and um, bringing people along in a common wave. I think sometimes, you know, there are a few exceptional companies that will step outside and ahead of the pack. But I think for many companies, being part of the leader group is important. So helping that leader group move on ahead together, that sort of thing happens in, in the meetings, but also in, in a lot of side conversations as well.
So before I let you go, when you get on the plane to fly back to your base in D.C., uh, are you going to feel that this was uh, uh, more more optimistic than the past or just another Davos or what? Well, so I'm not in a position to say more compare, so I'm afraid because this is my first. Um, I am going to balance, you know, that was mostly a positive spin. And, and there's a lot of positive things that are part of here. Uh, that doesn't mean, though, from my perspective, we haven't um, got a long way to go. I, I've, I've sat in a couple of fairly large sessions where the discussion was still about things like giving back to the community. Um, giving back always troubles me, suggests that the main business over there somehow takes away, and therefore you take a bit of that profit and you give it back. Um, I've been in discussions you know, that are about community engagement and employee volunteering as a company's proof point that it's a good business. And although those things are all important, they, they, I, I look forward to the day where those are not parts of the conversations around sustainability. Those, those are things that happen because it's fine for the company to do, but they don't demonstrate a, that a company is fit for, for, for the future. Um, companies are clearly doing a lot of great stuff on operations and supply chain. I think there's an enormous amount of progress. The places that are still struggling, I think, a bit are how companies could be using their brand to actually influence some of the changes that we'd all like to see and that they say they'd like to see amongst their customers. Questions around consumption. Um, and a troublesome area for everybody is investors. The role that, this, that role between the incentives set by investors and the actions companies want to take. So I think the positive stuff is, is, is balanced. I am going to go back on the plane um, optimistic. Um, I am going to go back on the plane thinking it was, well, a trip that was very worthwhile. Great to hear. Um, Kevin Moss, Global Director of Business Sustainability at the World Resources Institute in Washington, D.C. Thanks for taking some time, Kevin. Joe, thank you very much. Appreciate the opportunity. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350, and you'll find more about the organization's stories and events we've mentioned in this episode. And while you're there, look for the link to our other podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. Hit us up by email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love your comments and ideas. GreenBiz 350's director is Stephanie Joyce. Elsa Wenzel is our intrepid managing editor. We'll be back next week for another edition of Green Biz 350. From all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. 